Let's read a little bit in Psalm chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me, and He heard my cry. And He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. The marginal reading of the New American Standard says, He brought me up out of the mud of the mire. It's the picture of of a person sinking in quicksand, we might say. And God set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And He put a new song in my mouth, the song of praise to our God. And many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Verse 17. Since I am afflicted and needy. Is that not where we are? Is that not what we're talking about this week? Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. Thou art my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Have you ever noticed that everyone else has the answers to your struggles? Somebody says to you when you're going through a hard time, well, listen here, you need to just get over it. Or somebody else says, you need to just snap out of it. Or somebody else gives you the advice, well, you know, I know times are bad, but time heals all wounds. Or my personal favorite when somebody says, well, you know, if it were me, this is what I would do. It's called over-the-counter advice. And I dare say all of us have been on the receiving end from time to time of over-the-counter advice. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something about grief. Grief is as complicated as each of us is complicated. And those who think grief can be reduced down to a simple definition or a set of timelines or completion dates, those people have never ridden the roller coaster of emotional pain. There's always going to be the Eliphazes and the Bildads and the Zophars, you know, the friends of Job, who came into Job's life, who thought they had all the answers to Job's troubles. And they not only didn't have the answers, they didn't even have the questions. Julie and I lost a very, very special friend just a few years ago in an automobile accident. And for the year after Ron was killed, we would every Sunday night call his widow and inquire how she was doing and how the girls were doing and the handling of all of that. And we called her every Sunday night for a year to just keep check on her. And one Sunday night, I was talking to her, and after I hung up the phone, I went and wrote down what she said to me that night, because I thought it to be very, very important. This is what she said. She said, the girls alternate between crying and anger. They keep saying it is unfair as they watch others return to normal while we are stuck, held captive to the tragedy. I want you to listen carefully to what she said. Crying, anger, unfair, stuck, 
held captive. Like a lot of other people. Here is one person who is trying to make her way through the maze of grief and the maze of heartache. And she's wondering if she's ever going to make it through. See, that's the question we ask when we go through difficult times in our life, a tragedy of some sort. Will I ever get over this? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a very simple question. But the answer to the question is very complex. Because we are complex. There is no script for grief. It doesn't exist. Grief is as individual as every single human fingerprint. That's why the grieving process for a family that loses a 90-year-old grandfather with Alzheimer's is quite different from the grief of the woman I just described who kisses her husband goodbye in the morning as he leaves for work and there's an accident and she never sees him again. But her grief is different from the spouse who loses his marriage to infidelity. And his grief is different from the individual who is diagnosed with cancer and is left with that particular fallout. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, there are common denominators to grief for sure. But grief is different because each of us is different. And you never get over it. But with God's help, you can move past it and you can move on. Now, if you think all you have to do when you've gone through trouble and tragedy is just read your Bible and pray, and tomorrow morning all of the bad and all of the nasty and all of the pain is just going to disappear. Folks, that's not reality. For one thing, you don't ever forget the person whom you love, the person for whom you grieve. And even though your feelings can be tempered by time as more good memories than bad flood your thinking, there will be days in which you will take two steps forward and you will fall back three. It could be a song on the radio. It could be a picture. It could be a voice on the telephone. And suddenly raw emotion just bubbles back to the surface and takes you back to a place that you thought you had left behind. And we look in the mirror sometimes and we ask ourselves, am I going crazy? Am I losing my mind? And the answer is no. Fact is, that's just perfectly normal. Let me say two things about grief. Number one, there is no completion date for the process. There is no completion date for the process. Now, we don't want to hear about that because we want everything to be nice and neat and orderly and organized. But, folks, not everything is nice and neat and orderly and organized. And that includes the grief process. And the second thing I want to say about that is men and women, male and female, handle grief differently. 
Because that's the way our Creator has made us. For example, men tend to bottle everything up and we keep it all on the inside. A woman, on the other hand, can be more expressive with her emotions. She can be more sharing, for example, with other women regarding how she is hurting. That's why when a man loses his wife to death versus when a woman loses a husband to death, all things being equal, the male will remarry quicker than the female. And why is that? Well, Genesis 2 and verse 18, it is not good for a male to be alone. He can't handle it as well as she can. I'll tell you that. And so it is when a man remarries. That is often a testimony to the life that he lost that he seeks to regain. He's looking to find his heart again. And the male heart beats in the context of companionship. Because a male shares his heart, he shares his life with one other person only. And when she dies, something within him dies. Now, women aren't like that. Women can go through tragedy and women can go through hard times. And you know what women do? They get together with other women and they go down here to a tea room that's all pink and pretty and all that kind of thing. And they go to the tea room, and after talking about where did you buy your, where did you get your shoes, and oh, I love your purse, and all that kind of stuff, they sit there and they just start opening up, and they just share their heart with one another, and they just sit around and they have a good cry. Do you think men do that? You got to be kidding. (laughs) Can you see some of us doing that? I'll get Brother Ron Adams to go with me because I'm, I'm hurting and I, I, need, I need a good cry and I'm going to get Brother Ron to go with me and I'm going to get Brother David sitting over here. Mark, you want to go? And uh, Phil, you're not invited. Uh, we'll get Cavender to go. We'll get, we'll get a bunch of us together and we'll go out. And we Guys, don't do that. If, if, a, if a guy is hurting, I tell you what we do. We go to Hardee's. We'll go to Hardee's and get a hamburger or someplace And we'll sit around and we'll talk about basketball and baseball and football and hunting and fishing and golf and NASCAR. We'll talk about everything under the sun except the elephant in the room. We don't want to talk about that. Ladies and gentlemen, men and women are different. God made us different. And what I'm saying to you tonight is grief, whether you're male or female... Grief is a very private journey. It is a very individual journey. And all of us, at our very best, will continue to be a work in progress. But it is amazing to me how many people get stuck in the miry mud that the psalmist is talking about. One of the things that amazed the Brother Lanfear and I, as we worked on this book project, was the number of people we would interview who would admit they were stuck. And we found out it happens regardless of the kind of grief you're going through, whether it is divorce or whether it is a, a disease or whether it is a, the loss of a loved one, whatever it is. It's like life just suddenly grinds to a halt 
And every conversation and every activity goes right back to the accident, goes right back to the diagnosis, goes right back to the tragedy. And so it is people live in a perpetual time warp and they get stuck. And the tragedy becomes their whole point of reference. The, the tragedy defines who they are. And close ties and friendships that they've had with others become less so as people around us begin to figure out that we're not moving on. And sometimes those of us who are hurting perceive that as a great injustice. And we begin to think, my friends don't care about me anymore. When in reality, that's not the case. My friends recognize a very hard truth that I'm failing to understand. That regardless of what you've gone through, life moves on. And it has to move on. And God made it to move on. And one of the reasons it moves on is because God knows that will help us in the grieving process. But not if we get stuck in the mud of the mire. There are stages of grief. That's not some kind of psychological mumbo-jumbo. That's biblical. That's true. There is, first of all, and I think I put this in your notes, there's the denial stage that, that we all go through. And it usually doesn't last very long because we have to eat and make a living. We're sort of forced into accepting the reality of life's events. And we're forced into moving forward. And yet some people prolong the denial stage. I've known people that would take their house or maybe a room in their house and they will turn it into a museum of memories. They want everything to stay just as it was. The day of the accident or the day of the death or the day of the tragedy. That's not always a good thing. Denial may be the birth of grief. But it cannot be the resting place of grief. And as odd as it may seem, respect for the person I've lost, respect for the person I've given up, is best seen when I finally give myself permission to move forward. When you get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the very last chapter, Moses, the great servant of God, dies. And the Scripture says in that last chapter of Deuteronomy that the children of Israel mourned and wept for 30 days for Moses. And then the Bible says the period of mourning was over. And you take the page in your Bible and you turn it over to Joshua chapter 1. And the Lord gives these words to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now take this people and cross this Jordan. What's the message? The message is there's a time for grieving. And the message also is there's a time to begin to move forward. Is that not the case in 2 Samuel chapter 12 with David? When he was lying upon the ground, grieving in his heart because of the illness of his child, and then the child dies. And nobody wanted to tell the king the child has died because they were afraid he would do himself physically physical harm. But when David figured it out and asked, and they told him, yes, the child is deceased, the Bible says David got up and he took a bath and he changed his clothes 
and he went and worshipped, and he sat down and ate. And his servants said, well, we don't understand. While the child was sick, you wouldn't do anything like that. And he said, well, I was, I was praying. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. He said, I was praying that maybe God would change his mind about that. But now that the child has died, I shall go to him. But he shall not return to me. And the message of that story, ladies and gentlemen, is David realized the time had come to move forward. Anger, though, is a whole other breed. When there is a divorce, we tend to lash out at the other person. We want to fight back. We want to get even. When there is death or maybe a disease diagnosis, so many people, and more than we realize, get angry at God. Now, while anger is a very natural emotion, it is a God-given emotion. The Bible is very specific about how to handle your anger. In Ephesians 4 and verse 26 and verse 27, it says, Be angry and sin not. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then he adds this, do, do not give the devil an opportunity. Why does he add that? Because the greatest door of opportunity we can ever give the deceiver of mankind is to harbor our anger and hold it in and refuse to let it go. And I wonder how many people do that. I wonder how many Christians Some sitting here tonight have heard this story before, but that's okay. I did a funeral in Texas of a young couple that lost a child. And in one sense, it was a very difficult funeral, but in another sense, it wasn't. Because it was a funeral in which you knew where the child was. But it was still emotional. And when we got out to the gravesite, and after the final prayer, the funeral director went back to the car and he brought to that young couple a pink balloon. And he placed that pink helium balloon in their hand and they stepped out from beneath the tent and so did everybody else who was there. And the sky was as bright blue as you could ever imagine. And that young couple stepped out from beneath that tent and together they held that single pink balloon and gradually they let it go. And we watched as it climbed higher and higher and higher till finally it was just a dot against the bright blue sky and then it was gone. And I've thought a lot about that in relation to anger. I'm not saying it's as easy as going out and just releasing a balloon. But you know, each of us has a choice as to how long we're going to hold on to that balloon called anger and how long we're just going to keep it. And we have a choice as to when we're finally going to let it go. If you're angry with God, then you need to get out on your knees and you need to tell Him because He already knows it anyway. You need to lay your heart at His feet. You need to lay your tears at His feet. You need to confess what He knows. 
God can't heal you until you get real with Him. What is it David said in Psalm 32? When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. That not only is true in regard to David's situation, it may be true in regard to yours. And then there's that thing called depression. You know how many times the Bible talks about depression without ever using the word? Psalm 119 and verse 25, My soul cleaves to the dust. We talk about feeling low. Listen to the psalmist in poetry, in poetic language. My soul cleaves to the dust. You can't get any lower than that. And as you read through the Scripture, some of God's greatest servants battled depression. Moses, Jeremiah, David, Elijah. Look in Psalm 88, the sons of Korah. Psalm 88, beginning in verse 1. See if there's not something in here to which you can identify. Psalm 88, verse 1. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before Thee. Let my prayer come before Thee and incline Thine ear to my cry. My soul has had enough troubles and my life is drawn near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down into the pit. I'm like a man without any strength. Forsaken among the dead. He said, I'm, I feel like I'm walking dead man. Is that not an apt description of depression? Where you just kind of day after day after day just go through the motions and you just feel dead. If the greats of the Bible, if people that God, God used greatly in Scripture... If they can have their downtime and their blue Mondays and their pit of despair, why do we come along and act all surprised that the same things happen to us sometimes? Listen, depression is emotional superglue. And it is easy to get stuck. And there is no quick and simple fix. And some people need medical attention to help them conquer that. You know what I think about that? I think that's perfectly okay. Sometimes we Christians view physicians that treat the broken mind somehow as suspect when we don't think a thing about physicians who treat a broken body in the same way. I was coming home yesterday afternoon. I came home early because I had to get ready to come over here. And I'm driving through a sub the subdivision at the time of day when there's not hardly anybody home. And I'm driving through the subdivision, and over to my right is a home, and there's an elderly couple that lives there. And they're always out working in their yard and that sort of thing. And, and uh, so I'm driving by, and I'm waving. And she's standing there in the driveway, and uh, he's lying down in the driveway. And I drove on past, and it took me about two seconds to figure out, that picture's not right. And I threw the pickup in reverse, and I backed up as quickly as I can, and I got out of the truck, and I ran over there, and I said, are you okay? And he said, she said, no, he's fallen. He's hurting. So I'll tell you what I did to my neighbor yesterday. I said, uh, can I read the Bible with you? 
Let me, let me, let me read the Bible with you. Let me pray with you. I didn't do that. I got out my cell phone and I punched 911. And we got an ambulance there in just a matter of moments because that's what he needed. Now, I ask you this question. Did my neighbor, does my neighbor need to read the Bible and pray? Why, sure he does. He needs to read the Bible and pray. Everybody does. But there comes a point in time, ladies and gentlemen, when sometimes a person needs other things too. Sometimes we, we turn this, just read the Bible and pray as to the quick and easy cure-all for everything. Let me say something about that. God's Word to us and our words to Him, well, in the end, is the cure-all to life situations. But sometimes the mind can get in such a state of imbalance that it requires medical attention. And instead of being critical for those who so suffer, Maybe we need to be thankful that God has provided mankind with wonderful discoveries in science and medication to help lift us out of the mud of the mire. And so instead of criticism, let's praise Him for what He has done in order to help us heal not only our bodies, but at times to heal our minds that can be just as broken. But most of us, most of us, don't get down that deep. Most of us find ourselves next to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, and that's where I'm going to close tonight. 1 Kings, the 19th chapter. And if you don't think the Bible deals with real-life stuff, then you haven't read 1 Kings 19. And it is interesting to me that if 1 Kings 19 is the lowest point in Elijah's life, if you back up a chapter to the very previous chapter, chapter 18, chapter 18 was the high point in his life. The, the, the mountaintop moment of Elijah winning over the prophets of Baal and declaring that Jehovah is God in front of all of those people. It was the high point of his life. And you turn to one page in your Bible and he falls and it's the low point of his life. Which says what goes up must come down. How did it happen? 1 Kings 19, look at your notes. Number one, he stopped thinking clearly. Now, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid. I underline that in my Bible. He was afraid. Fear is debilitating. Fear of the unknown. Fear of, what do I do now? Fear of, what if this happens? And fear of, what if that happens? But ironically, ladies and gentlemen, if you look through this passage, not any place in the context of the passage does the whole scene, nothing mentions prayer. Nothing. And it becomes apparent that here is Elijah, the great prophet of God, and he lays aside his greatest weapon. And that's the power of prayer. James says in James chapter 5 and verse 13, Are you suffering? Are you suffering? He says, pray, pray. But I don't see Elijah praying here. He stopped thinking clearly. Secondly, he separated himself from his friends. 
at the end of verse 3. He left his servant there, and he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He's all alone now. There's a human tendency when we get discouraged, we just isolate ourselves. And that just makes it worse because depression just feeds on loneliness. That's why it is essential when we pass through the fire of depression that we connect with people who can help us. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 9 and 10, two are better than one because when one falls, the other can lift up his companion. But Elijah is all alone. There's nobody to lift him up. And the third thing, he fell into the trap of self-pity. He sat down under a tree in verse 4, and he requested of God that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. And when you come on down to verse 10, he said, I'm the only one left. And he says it again in verse 14, I alone am left. He felt like he's the only one doing what was right. He's the only one going through this kind of crisis. And I've known a lot of people like that. I've known a lot of Elijahs. And they think they're the only one. And you are not the only one. Now, here's what's interesting. God listened, and God was patient. Here is his servant, Elijah, sinking in the mud of the mire and going lower and lower and lower. And God wasn't going to let him do that. So what did God do to pull him back out? What did God do? Well, let me leave you with these three or four things. Number one, God prescribed for him rest and food. You see that in verse 5 and 6? He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise, eat! And then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and he lay down again. It is amazing how better you feel when you make a decision that you're going to take care of you. Life survivors are not supermen and women. They are people who believe that in spite of the tragedies, that life is still worth the living. And that begins, ladies and gentlemen, with the realization that I have to take care of me in order to be able to take care of anybody else. And that's not selfishness. That's selflessness. Have you ever been on an airplane? When they're going through the rigmarole about how you put your seatbelt on, and I think everybody knows how to do that. And then they get to the part about the oxygen that they'll tell you that it's probably never going to happen. But in case it does, oxygen masks are going to fall from the ceiling. And then they make this announcement. If you are traveling with small children, take the oxygen mask and place it on your face first. And then assist your children. Well, that sounds rather selfish, doesn't it? As a mother or a father, you just put it on your face first. 
Well, the common sense is going to tell you that if you don't place it on your face first, if you pass out from lack of oxygen, there's not going to be anybody to take care of your kids. And so you take care of you first so you can turn around and take care of them. That's what God is trying to help Elijah to see. And then beginning in verse 11, I want you to notice how God talked to him, how God communicated with him. This is a great scripture. Verse 11, he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by and a great and a strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks. That must have been a powerful thing to behold. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing, a gentle breeze. And it came about when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing? What's going on? Why are you thinking like this? God doesn't approach the prophet and say to him, Listen here, quit your belly aching. Get up and get on your feet, you bumbling prophet. Why don't you just snap out of it? God doesn't do that. Instead, God gave His servant quiet reassurance. He didn't speak to him out of the mighty wind. He didn't speak to him out of the earthquake. He didn't speak to him out of the fire. There was a gentle breeze. And God said, Why are you thinking like this, Elijah? Why are you thinking like this? The third thing He did, He made him feel needed again. Look in verse 15 and 16. One word in verse 15. Go! Go! And in the next few verses, God says, these are the things I want you to do. I still have plans for your life. You are very valuable to me. And by the way, Elijah, you're not the only one who is left. You're not the only one. There are 7,000 people. And they're trying to do what's right. And they need to hear my word. And I need you to go preach to them. They need to hear my word from you. God gave Elijah a reason to live. And He'll do the same for you. You may not have 7,000 people who depend on you, but I bet somebody does. In fact, I bet a bunch of somebody's do. God would say to you exactly what He said to Elijah in verse 15. Go. Go! There are people who need you. And finally, in verse 19, he gave him a special gift, the gift of a new friend. He gave him Elisha to mentor, to bring along. You see, Elijah thought his life was over. God had other plans. And if God can do that for Elijah, he can do that for you and for me. Psalm 103 and verse 4 says, It is God who redeems your life. It is God who redeems your life from the pit. You see, 
There's times when all of us are sinking in the mud of the mire. And it is God who throws the rope. And He begins to pull us out if we'll just let Him. There are certain defining moments in the lives of all of us. And many of the defining moments are related to suffering. And when you go through a defining moment in your life, you are never the same again. Ever. I think of the Hebrew boys in the book of Daniel. When they decided they were not going to bow down and worship that image of Nebuchadnezzar. And they told him that. And they said, our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down before your idol. And he threw them in the fire. You talk about a defining, life-changing moment. Or I think about the Apostle Peter. After he had denied the Lord three times, after he had bragged in front of his peers that he would never do it, and he did it. And the Bible says the Lord turned and looked at him. Do you think Peter ever forgot that look? I'll tell you it stayed up here the rest of his life. That was a defining moment for him. Or I think about Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. When the man who was going to persecute Christians met the risen Savior. And he never forgot that day. Or the days that would come after. That was a defining moment. One day I woke up. And I woke up as a single dad with three kids, ages nine and eight and 18 months. And that was a pretty good defining moment in my life. And my friend David, when he stood over a grave and had to bury his college-age son, And then just a few years later, his wife at age 49, who died of a heart attack in her front yard. Those were defining moments for him. And I bet if we just went around the room tonight, I bet there's a lot of people here who've had some pretty tough defining moments in life. And sometimes when you have one of those defining moments, you don't see any way out of it. It's like there's no end in sight. There's no way God could use this in any way, shape, or form to bring about anything positive or good. Well, don't be so sure. Because my Bible still says, nothing is impossible question is, what are you and I going to do about it? Are we going to let cynicism eat our lunch? Are we going to allow the quicksand of self-pity just keep taking us down further and further? The Lord's throwing you a rope. And He's telling you tonight, you've got to grab on to this. And you grab on and you hold on. And He says, I am going to pull you out of that. But when He pulls you out of that, that's not the end. That's the beginning. Because He's going to pull you out of that so that you in turn can go help other people 
who have fallen in as well. We comfort one another with the comfort we have received from Him. I love the story of the Special Olympics when there was this race with these boys and girls. And as they began to race around the track, which really, you know, if you know the Special Olympics, they weren't racing as you normally think, but they were running and making their way around the track. One of the little girls fell. And she skinned her knee up on the asphalt. And she was lying there, bruised and bleeding. And a little boy turned around and saw his friend on the ground. And instead of continuing on around the race, he, he stopped and he ran back to her. And he knelt down beside her and he, he helped to get her back to her feet. And unknown to them, the other boys and girls had seen what was happening. And every one of them stopped. And every one of them came back. And together they helped pick that little girl back up and get her back on her feet. And then an amazing thing happened. Those boys and girls held hands. Those boys and girls skipped around that track holding hands. And those boys and girls all crossed the finish line at the same time. Folks, you want to know what church is about? That's what church is about. We come together and we work together and worship and assemble together and we praise our God. But one of the things He wants us to do, He wants us to hold hands. He wants us to help each other. Because He knows, as He has walked here Himself, how hard life is. And all of us, all of us fall down. All of us fall down. And all of us need people to help pick us back up. Franklin, will you do that? Because if we don't do that, then we're not a church that deserves to wear the name of Jesus Christ. May God help us to wrap our arms around hurting people and keep encouraging one another as we make our way to heaven. Because that's what it's all about.